This podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Advocacy Program Manager Liz DeBetta as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan Center for the Education of Women in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features Pamela Ryder Feenstra, a U of M lecturer in Carillon, affiliate faculty at the Institute for Research on Women and Gender, and at the Center for World Performance Studies. She's also the artistic director at Healing Bells, which brings together award-winning journalists, filmmakers, and composers to tell underreported stories of social injustices and agency via music and film. Pamela, I'm so thrilled to speak with you today. Welcome to Strength in the Midst of Change. Would you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your story? Thanks, Liz. Sure, I'd be happy to. So stories, music, and a curiosity about people and cultures worldwide have been my central passions throughout my life. My early childhood memories were listening to my mother read stories and watching her play the piano. Those are the very first things I can remember in my life. And I remember trying to reach up to the piano to see if I could do what she did because I thought her fingers were magic and I wanted to know if my fingers were too. And I could barely reach the keyboard. But eventually, yes, I learned to play the piano. And when I started playing the piano, I would put on my parents' LP recordings on the stereo, and I'd listen really carefully, and then I'd try to imitate the track that I'd hear on the piano, even if it was a choir singing or an orchestra, I would try to figure it out on the piano. And I'd listen to the same track over and over until I could play the entire piece. And afterwards, then I'd start creating variations and stories based on that piece. And first, when I was pretty little, it would be childhood topics ranging from a thunderstorm or popcorn popping or celebrating a snow day. Then a few years later, working out adolescent peer drama and expressing joy for a new friendship or grieving my dog who died. The piano was my outlet and I improvised stories on it as my private childhood game. And it turns out that listening so intently to stories and music and then creating new music of my own is still central in my life. Now as the artistic director and composer for Healing Bells. I love that. I love the magic fingers. That's so (laughs) fun. It's such a beautiful image. So one of the instruments that you play, the carillon, is a public bell tower instrument. What drew you to the carillon initially, and how is it different from your work playing other instruments? I was drawn to the carillon first by its rich, warm, resonant sound. The bells are just incredible, and they have different overtone structures, so they're sort of hauntingly beautiful in a way that other instruments aren't, well, at least not in the same way. But I was also fascinated that it's a public instrument. It plays a role for the general public and by its function as a timekeeper and a messenger. 
And I experienced those functions firsthand when I spent a couple of years doing postdoctoral work, studying and performing on antique pipe organs in Germany. And I chose to move to Ostfriesland, and that's in the rural northwest corner of Germany, because as a rural area, this was one of the only regions where historic pipe organs were not destroyed during World War II bombings. And the oldest organ in that region was in this tiny, tiny village. It was almost all farmland. And the village, the town was called Riesum. And it had a 15th century pipe organ with a bell that was cast at the same time. And the bell was pitched to the E that was the same pitch as it was on the organ, which was pretty rare because pitch wasn't standardized back in the 15th century. So this was amazing. And Rizum had a young new pastor and I would always stop by her home to pick up the key to the church to practice on the organ. And invariably she'd ask me if we could play the town hit together. And I, I said, what's the town hit? The extra hit, she'd say to me. <laughs> Their hit, it turns out, was a 15th century piece that had these repeated notes in the piece that worked on the belt because it was just one pitch that kept repeating while the organ part had played these fast flourishes around it. So every time I'd pick up the key, she'd say, shall we play the hit? And I'd say, sure. It was just the sonic exploration that was glorious. We had so much fun doing that. But then one day I came and I, I you know, rang her doorbell and she came to the door and she said, I'm so sad, but we can't play our town hit anymore. And I said, oh, what happened? And then she explained that over the centuries, the farmers relied on that church bell to tell time. So when to wake up, when to milk their cows, when to go out in the fields, when to come back for lunch. And so that was the timekeeping aspect. But then she explained that they had always relied on it also to ring emergencies or and celebrations, weddings, or special people coming to town, and then to ring out announcements such as if someone died. So if someone died and they were 79 years old, it was the pastor's job to ring the bell 79 times. And the farmers would be in the field and they would hear that and they would just, they'd stop their work and start counting. And they knew all of the villagers so well that they could immediately detect who it was who died. So every time we were, you know, having so much fun playing this hit, the farmers were getting all upset thinking, oh no, is it Hank? Was it Berta? Who was it? And they're counting. And so anyway, we had to stop playing that. <laughs> So we didn't keep them upset all the time, but that was, you know, just sort of a very tangible way that I learned about that timekeeping and message making that bells do. So that got me thinking when I moved to Ann Arbor and started performing on the Baird Carillon at the University of Michigan in Burton Tower, then I started thinking about the listeners on the ground. And up on the 10th floor of the tower, we can't see who's listening. We never know who our audience is. But what I did know is that the repertoire that was 
existed for Carillon then was primarily composed by white men of European descent, and they were dead. And so it was old music, and it was music from one, one population. And I would come out of the tower, climb all the way down the 10 flights of stairs, and see people from around the world and hear languages from around the world. And I just thought, this isn't okay. We can't be you know, this greatest amplifier of the most privileged slice of society and exclude everyone else. This has to completely change. So I started composing music, but I wanted to do it in collaboration with other people. So I applied for a grant, which I was awarded, in which I interviewed people from various cultural backgrounds and people who were very much underrepresented on the Carillon. And I asked them about their experiences with prejudice. And to a person, they, they just really opened up and shared their experience and felt surprised that someone asked even, but also felt, I mean, they were glad to be able to talk about it. And then I asked how they'd feel if I'd write music based on their stories, and they all agreed. You know, they were in full control of it. They could tell me if they didn't like something, if it didn't represent their story. They could decide, even after I composed it, that they didn't want it performed. But they all ended up wanting it performed, and I witnessed what it did to them from feeling silenced to feeling valued and feeling... Um, you know, made less than to being lifted up. And so I thought, wow, this is really meaningful work. I want to do more of that. And when Tiffany Ng, my, my Carillon colleague, asked me to teach Carillon at U of M, I initiated two longer-term projects with the Carillon students because I thought, you know, the more we get students involved, the more quickly we can spread this movement of diversifying the carillon repertoire and bringing people to the table to learn how to play the carillon who also were very underrepresented. So we developed together this Global Rings and I taught them how to compose and arrange for the carillon. And then Global Rings Improv, I taught them how to improvise. And I asked them to bring stories and tunes from around the world and they did. So now the Global Rings, the first collection is published. We have 42 new pieces. 20 students are first-time published composers with that. And I'm right now editing the second book, and that has very rich offerings as well. We were able to secure funding from a number of sources, including CEW, to bring in Don Avery, an Indigenous composer to compose works for the second collection and she really got into it and it's inspired her to do more of this type of work in her own teaching so it is it's called global rings as if you throw a stone into a pond and then the rings move concentrically outward so that it spreads and that's indeed happening I mean one of my students was Kevin Lieberman and he was an AI ethics PhD student in robotics and engineering. And he was an active member on campus and internationally in the Jewish community. So he asked me to mentor him to arrange Jewish tunes, which he kept doing even after the semester was over. 
And then on Yom Hashoah, or the Holocaust Remembrance Day, I played some of Kevin's and other arrangements of Jewish songs of lament. And it turns out that Kevin was in Spain at an AI conference that day, but his colleagues and mentors started telling him about how much it meant to them to hear pieces that honored Jews and to acknowledge the atrocities and that how that provided them a sense of belonging that they hadn't experienced before on campus. And it turns out that the Frankel Center is near the bell tower, which I didn't realize. I didn't know where it was located. So they all heard these pieces playing while they were eating lunch together. So it was, it was really pretty amazing. And we've had this happen over and over with guests from the dental school from South Korea. Now we have arrangements of pieces from South Korea in our global rings. And they went from being polite bystanders to suddenly feeling ownership of the bells because we could play tunes that they recognize from their home country. These are some really great examples of the way that you're using Carillon and the bells to address marginalization of people and lift up the voices of those who feel silenced, which is such an interesting way to tell stories, right? That's you and I have had conversations outside of this particular podcast conversation and and you know a little bit of my story. And so we share that aspect of storytelling and being interested in helping people tell their stories in various creative ways. And I find the work with the bells so fascinating because of that sort of image of the, the rings, right? I'm also thinking about the way that as someone who has stood on the ground and listened to the bells from the tower and also have been up in the tower <laughs> and, and experienced the bells closely, the way that the sound sort of reverberates through your body. And there's a sort of embodied kind of presence, I'll say, which I think is interesting too, when we think about the ways that healing and stories are embedded in us as humans. But in addition to that particular work. Your work with Healing Bells also combines filmmaking and music and other art forms. Can you speak a little bit about what led you to that particular work? You've touched on some of it already. Right, with that grant. And it was around, well, it was a little earlier than that. I have to say, after the 2016 election, I initially felt helpless about the increasingly public displays of hate and racism and misogyny and homophobia and all the myths and disinformation that was just spreading so rapidly. And I ended up phoning my mentor the night after the inauguration because I was performing at the University of Alabama and everyone in the hotel where I was staying was celebrating and immediately felt like this gave license to just be extremely vocal and crude about racist, you know, just shouting out racist comments and misogynistic and, you know, taking over the world type comments. And it was just viscerally, I mean, I, I felt it throughout my body and I just felt so unwell. So I ended up phoning my mentor and just saying, you know, I'm so discouraged. And it was interesting because 
you know, he really agreed. He was feeling that way too. But then he started citing a poem and telling me about just a wonderful book he had just read and then reporting on a concert he had heard that just really lifted him up and a conversation just with some simple, just very basic conversation, but something that was really sweet inside of it. So each one of those things, the aspects contained beauty. And he didn't say, this is what you need to do or anything. He wasn't ever like that. But just after I hung up, I doubled down and thought, you know, I don't have political clout. I don't have economic means. But that's not the only way that I can have a voice. You know, I have music and I can have a voice through that. And I'm going to try to do that. So I started writing pieces in solidarity with the Me Too movement. And in response to the Pulse nightclub massacre, standing up, you know, to remember the victims and the Parkland school shooting victims, all of that happened, you know, in fairly close chronology. So I felt then, and I continue to feel such an urgency to do this storytelling through music work. And then fortunately found some amazing collaborators here at the University of Michigan, first and foremost with the award-winning journalists who have Knight Wallace fellowships here. So the Wallace House Center for Journalists director, Lynette Clemenson, asks me to give the incoming classes of journalists a tour of the Carillon, and that started in 2019. And so knowing that they must love stories, I mean, after all, they're journalists, and I love stories, I thought, well, I'll just play some of these storytelling pieces for them. And when I did, after the tour and after I played some of those pieces, a few of the journalists took me aside and asked whether I'd collaborate with them. And they explained, you know, there was one from Venezuela, Marielba, and she said, I'm censored in my home country and my people are suffering and I can't write about it and I need to document this truth because otherwise my people are being erased and I'm looking for a new way to tell these stories. So we ended up creating three pieces and then a Belarusian former news anchor, TV news anchor, contacted me. Same thing, she was threatened by an authoritarian government and made to spew propaganda on the TV and she couldn't stand it. She physically felt like she was choking. So she fled and others had stories that didn't fall under the breaking news moment. And especially, for example, this pertains to breaking news at the border with migration because most of the breaking news is about deportation and detention centers, how many people tried to cross, but it's pretty hard to hear about the true human side of it, the humanitarian crises that are forcing people to flee, the violence that they flee, the threats they undergo, and only to arrive at the border of the US and discover unjust immigration policies, particularly against people of color. So we started working together, several journalists and I, on individual pieces, and we recognized the power of the arts to tell stories and to provide a certain kind of healing. And of course, that was the academic year when the pandemic hit. 
And at that point, a Dutch journalist got news from her home newsroom in Amsterdam that the borders might be closing and flights would be canceled within a few days that she needed to fly home immediately. And what did she do? She called me and said, we have to meet in the bell tower. We have to do it now. And she invited some of her journalist friends to be there because they were all dispersing all over the world just for one last moment. And we played some pieces together and she said, we have to compose a piece now before I leave tomorrow. In it was like 18 hours away from her flight. She hadn't started packing. And she said, we have to write something that will bring people together because we're going to be isolated. She brought, this is so interesting, she brought a Ukrainian lament to me and said, this has the mood and the character that's going to be how we're all feeling soon as we're separated from each other. We need to do that. And that's long before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But the music just had that power. And so I added some parts that was depicting the viral spirals that were spreading around the world. And then we interrupted it with this lament to show how music can break through, yeah, not the virus itself, but can connect us somehow. And we wrote it, and then I sent it to Carolinists around the world, and she sent it to journalists around the world. And it was on TV in Brazil, and it was on the radio throughout many countries in Europe, and it made its way to the Far East. It was performed in South Korea, in South Africa, six continents. On May 21, 2020, we decided that that's the UNESCO World Day of Cultural Diversity for Dialogue and Development, and we invited them all to play it on that day. And they did, and... Then we got reports, the Carolina said that villagers reported throwing open their windows to hear the bells because everything had been silenced by then for two months. And just seeing each other from their windows and just the sound of the bells helped them to feel like they weren't so alone. So it was just this really amazing moment. And I still get reports about it today because I don't even know who all played it. I know some some places, but not all of them. And so that's why we decided to call what we do Healing Bells, because we realized, you know, I write not only for the Carillon, I write for piano and for chamber ensembles and pipe organ and other instruments, but yet the resonance of the bells and the idea of ringing out and the healing properties has become you know, what I do now with journalists. And then after that, the journalist talked with me about the value and necessity of what we were doing to preserve and tell stories that were being ignored or silenced. So we decided to build on those collaborations and give ourselves that name and to keep going. This is wonderful and inspiring work. You know, you're Kind of preaching to the choir with me because I am all for this kind of public testimony. I think, you know, the idea of archiving stories and making them part of the public canon is such an important task in the world that we live in. I mean, always, but especially, you know, as you talk through these last several years of political strife and a global pandemic and all of the ways in which our humanity continues to be interrupted, disrupted, and has meant that people continue to feel unheard and unseen. 
any way that those of us who are artists and working creatively can find to make people feel seen and valued and heard like that's such important advocacy and activist work like for me it's both of those things together and so i'm so fortunate that i get to have this conversation with you today but that other people are going to get to hear about this work well i really appreciate your work too liz and it's so great to be able to talk with you because as you said, we're kindred spirits in this endeavor of the healing through the arts, and I think you're doing just such amazing work. I'm really excited each time I get to learn more about yours, too. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's the beautiful thing about connecting with people. You know, we connected kind of by accident and then found out that we had this sort of shared passion for stories and storytelling and helping people to heal and it's brave work but it's my life purpose and you know every time i talk with you i know that it's also your purpose and we need more people with this kind of purpose to do this work because we need more connection we need to be connected as humans i mean and that's really what this podcast is about too right is like how do we find strength those inner reserves of strength in the midst of so much that is continually in flux in the world, right? And the creative work is really the anchor mm -hmm. and giving people permission to find and use their voices, which takes me to the next question because you recently composed and played a carol on piece for the CEW plus Sarah Goddard Power Award Ceremony entitled Empower. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about your inspiration for the piece. Oh, yes. When Tiffany Mara, CEW's director, invited me to perform on the carillon for the Sarah Goddard Power Award Ceremony, I told her I'd like to learn more about Sarah to know what would best honor her memory. So she suggested that I meet with Barbara Tucker, who was Sarah's assistant for many years. And Barbara told me so many stories of Sarah's tireless advocacy for women, from suggesting women for university decision-making committees to advancing women's athletics. And, you know, I left that meeting feeling as if everyone needed a Sarah, someone who believed in them and would advocate for their inclusion and equitable treatment. I mean, we still need Sarahs in our lives today. And then I met with Tiffany Mara and she so generously filled in more details about Sarah from the perspective of now being the director of CEW+. And I was so inspired by that, that I asked Tiffany if, if it would be okay with her if I composed a piece in Sarah's memory. And Tiffany was very excited about that and shared with me a lot of documentation of Sarah's life. And it turns out that Sarah was on the University of Michigan's Board of Trustees in the 70s and 80s. And during her board tenure, she consistently stood up for human rights. And it wasn't an easy time to do so. I know you just said that this kind of work is difficult and it still is difficult today, right? I get pushed back, you know, sometimes disinvited from doing a gig, a concert, when people hear it's about social justice work that I do. So yeah, there is pushback for sure. But Sarah experienced this as someone who was pretty much a lone voice and when she suggested women for a committee, the chair retorted, we already have one, one woman, right? And around the same time, some racial incidents occurred on campus. This was in the 80s. And 
you know, the racial tensions were running high and students were protesting and demanding to speak with the trustees about racial injustices. And what happened is most of the trustees moved in the opposite direction. They actually literally went underground in tunnels to leave their meetings so they wouldn't have to face students who were waiting outside. But Sarah leaned in and spoke with them and secured a meeting for them. And, you know, just knowing what it's like to be a spokesperson and an advocate, I can only imagine the stress Sarah endured as the lone spokesperson and advocate. So in Empower, the piece I composed, I tried to convey the struggles of working on human rights issues without support and juxtapose those thorny chromatic lines with strong and bold passages that depict Sarah's courage and her incredible ability to bolster up others. So the title Empower just felt right to honor her. And we've made a video of the piece which I'll post on my website so by the time this airs, listeners can view the video and hear the piece to learn a little bit more about Sarah. Thank you so much. Yeah, actually, I will look forward to watching the video as well, although I was part of the process a little bit and I got to hear one of your final rehearsals and learn about the Carillon, which I had not been introduced to before. And so this has been an interesting journey for me. And the piece is really powerful and empowering to listen to. So I hope that folks who are listening to this conversation also get a chance to hear that piece and let it affect them in the way that I know that it affected me and the people that got to hear it on the day of the Sarah Goddard Power Award Ceremony. And so sort of one final question, thinking about your work with Healing Bells, it's clear that music and other forms of storytelling can build community and be seen as a form of self and community care. And, you know, I think you already kind of talked about this, but we can talk a little bit more about how this has been especially relevant during the pandemic and if, you know, in what ways. Yes, I really believe in the healing power of the arts and you know, the pandemic took such a huge toll on students as well as on adults. And, you know, I've seen firsthand that adolescence often carries with it the sense of invulnerability along with all sorts of hope and promise. But the pandemic flipped that natural development upside down and instead proved that life is unpredictable. People die and we can be cut off from social interactions without warning. So that's created a global mental health crisis including resiliency and self-esteem deficits. And I think the world is in dire need of emotional and mental healing. And part of that healing journey is telling and listening to people's stories. I know the arts can play a healing role. And, you know, journalism is so underfunded in so many local newspapers and media sources. The ones that are fact-checked have now been cut. So that means that fewer people in power are being held to account. So I think the time is just, for all of these reasons, it's so important. And I wanted to, to mention related to our Healing Bells work that two themes keep coming up over the past four years. And one is forced migration. I think, as I mentioned, what we're doing right now is applying for funding to launch a full-scale oratorio called Mother of Exiles, 
where we're telling the human stories of people and the hostile treatment on both sides of the border. And I'm working with journalists who were border reporters and filmmakers. So we have clips of interviews with the people and it just brings such a different perspective about their humanity. And, you know, when I watch these videos, I think, how can people not see this and think that could be me, that could be my sister, my mother or my child, you know, and how would I want to be treated? I would hope someone would do something so that I can escape the violence so that my children can thrive or my parents don't suffer anymore, you know, any one of those things. And an intersecting topic is gender-based violence. And that is a theme that recurs with impunity in so many countries in the world. And right now I'm working with journalists Maria Arce and Ana Avila, each of whom covered gender-based violence in Puerto Rico and Mexico, respectively, and each of whom have come public about being survivors. And this is an issue that exists in our immediate circle here at U of M as well. And there are multiple disturbing instances of professors and administrators using their positions of power to engage in sexual harassment and assault. So we are responding to the need to stop the violence and stop this impunity. And for that, I just, I'm so excited to tell you that we're planning a cross-disciplinary event in the spring of 2024 called Ni Una Mas, or Not One More. It's the Puerto Rican slogan that stands up to gender violence and femicide, domestic partner femicide. And we're extremely grateful to Allison Alexi, Rebecca Shea, Irvine and Heidi Bennett at Erwig, the Institute for Research on Women and Gender, for partnering with us to plan this event because we're telling stories for multiple women and trans and non-binary people to highlight their strength and agency and to build collective healing forums and resources for survivors. I mean, we believe that GBV is a global health crisis and we are partnering with brilliant researchers who give evidence to this widespread and hugely underreported and underserved issue. And Liz, you are the first one to hear the good news that we were just awarded a substantial arts initiative grant to launch Neonamas as a collage concert as well as some healing arts workshops. And that gives us firm footing from which to seek additional co-sponsors and funding partners to make this happen. And we're hoping to create a series of events building on this initial success that will engage students and faculty and staff and community members to participate in this. And we just really want to keep those circles of healing expanding outward and embracing everyone who's ready to heal and wanting to join us. That's fantastic. Congratulations on the funding and also the incredible work. I mean, I also consider gender-based violence a global health crisis. I actually ran a research project called Our Bodies Are Not the Problem, which was a storytelling project that was my response to the Me Too movement. So, you know, similar to what you were saying earlier in this conversation about how we respond to 
what is happening in our bodies as creative people, as artists, and use that energy to create something. I had a conversation with a student who had been missing class and not turning in assignments after having been a very good student for a long time. And I was concerned and she finally emailed me back and she came and met with me and shared with me that she had been date raped a couple of months prior and she was a shell of herself and she was starting to have night terrors, which is why she couldn't come to class because she could only sleep during the day. And she hadn't told anybody except one of her roommates. And so obviously we got her the help that she needed. And it was a Friday afternoon and I went home and I was sitting with her story. And then it was reminding me of many of my own experiences. And then the next day I woke up over the weekend and Me Too had exploded all over social media. And then I was sitting with all of the stories that so many women I know and love were sharing. And by Monday morning, I just, I was angry. And I was like, I got to do something with this. So I started writing. It started as a series of poems and then it became, it became a scholarly spoken word piece, which is a particular thing that I do with my storytelling, which is I created this spoken word piece that was grounded in feminist theory and some different bits of literature, Joyce Carol Oates and Toni Morrison, to tell the story of not only this young woman who had shared with me her struggles, but you know my own experiences and like the strands of stories that were just all similar from so many women. And that is a project that I have continued in response. Also, the previous university I was at, there was some really horrific instances of male faculty and staff members also using their positions of power to be abusive to women on our campus. And so in the spring of 2021, I revived the piece and invited several other women in to tell their stories. And we rewrote the script and incorporated their stories into the original script. And then we told it in all of our voices. We each took different lines. It was a Zoom event because we were still in the midst of pandemic. And then that became a funded project last year before I left my previous university because of the higher rates of domestic violence and gender-based violence that were occurring because of COVID, right? We knew this was a problem and we wanted to continue to tell the stories. So, you know, giving voice to those kinds of stories is something that's so important, not only for the healing aspect of it, but also if we want to shift the narrative, right? And if we want to start to see the change, like we have to start telling the stories. So I'm so excited that you are also engaged in this kind of work. And I'm so excited to see how it all unfolds and be a support in any way if I can. I have so enjoyed having this conversation with you today. Thank you for being with me. Thank you so much, Liz. And it's really wonderful to hear also how you work and how we can collaborate to transform something painful into something healing and beautiful. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. 
Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW Plus and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi. 